Grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, as we just sang the words from your word, the kingdom is ours not because of what we have done, but because of what you have done for us. Continually show us what that kingdom looks like that you invite us to live into. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Hopefully you caught some of the reading of the book of Nahum. Again, we are deep into the weeds of the Bible, you might say. One of the most obscure books, obscure prophets, only three chapters. And we're going to get to know them a bit today as we are going through little guys with a big message, the 12, what get called minor prophets in the Old Testament, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. So let's just get into Nahum and get to know him a little bit. His name, Nahum, in Hebrew means comfort. So if you can figure out why a guy named Comfort would write a book like this, come and tell me after the, after the service. So uh, let's, let's get into him. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, a prophecy concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. So a lot of prophets begin that way. Hey, this is the guy. God gave him words, and he's going to say them. Well, how do we know Nineveh already? Jonah. Okay, so some of the same places. Jonah was 755 B.C. Here, I've shown this to you a number of times. If you can't see it, you can see the, the little stuff. You can see the big stuff. Nahum circled, and Jonah is before him to the left. So you have... On the gold far left, David, Solomon, then the big squiggly line, the kingdom divides. You have Israel, the north, Judah, and the south. Those are the God's people, two kingdoms, north and south. Almost every prophet is sent to God's people. Just a few are sent elsewhere. Jonah, we studied him. He's sent to Nineveh, 755 B.C., maybe even a little earlier. Nahum is sent to Nineveh, 650, and even later, so 100 to 150 years after. Same place, different story. And then you have Edom, Obadiah gets sent to Edom, so other than that. But we're with, we're with Nineveh right now, the Assyrians. So Jonah, God sends to call them to repentance because God loves them and God wants to show His mercy and grace, and they do. Remember, they, they turn and believe in God. Now we are 100 to 150 years later at the book of Nahum, and they've turned back to their evil, violent ways, and now God has a different message for them. What is that message? Maybe you caught it. Verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. Do you see some words reappearing there that I underlined for you? Yeah, this is the stuff that makes us uncomfortable, isn't it? Like, yikes. Oh, uh, uh, the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. I, uh, right? This is the side of God that unsettles us. Talking about God's wrath or God's judgment or the words there, God's vengeance. It's very uncomfortable, but we have to. And so we have it as the topic of judgment and today has come up a lot in the prophets. So we're talking in a lot of different ways throughout the summer about that. So let's talk about that. Nahum is a book of judgment against Nineveh, the Assyrians. That's it. There's three chapters and... You know, there's like two half verses of what you'd call good news. The rest is harsh judgment. So how do we understand 
God's wrath, God's judgment. And by the way, if you're here today and that idea is totally unbelievable to you, I'm glad you're here. I think that this idea to many in America today is a stumbling block to trusting in God, and so I think it's very important to talk about. And although the idea of God having vengeance or God having wrath might be very uncomfortable. It's actually a good thing if you see it in picture of the whole Scriptures and the whole character of God. It's actually a good thing because we need God to judge and be the judge even if we don't always like it. So judgment. We can't live with it. We can't live without it, right? Judgment. We want our mistakes. I want my mistakes be, to be overlooked by everybody, but then I'm glad when other people have done something wrong and they have to you know, get caught and they pay for their wrongdoing, right? We don't like the thought of judgment, but if you do A work in a class, you want to receive an A, right? It wouldn't be fair to receive a C or a D for A work. And if you receive too many Fs, you probably don't move on to the next grade. Your, your grades in school tell something about whether or not you understand the material. We need that, and we know it. And I'm pretty sure most of you stopped at the red lights you encountered and the stop signs you encountered on the way to worship this morning, right? Most of you. Why did you do that? Because the laws say so? Yes. And you don't want the judgment and the consequences. But seriously, it's Sunday morning. How many policemen are actually watching? You probably could have ran all the lights and the stop signs and gotten away with it today, right? But if everybody did that, it wouldn't work, right? It wouldn't be safe. Or at the uh, Women's World Cup this summer, they've been using video assistant re review, or VAR, to make sure they get the calls right. Why? Because there's been a long history, particularly in soccer and other sports are going to this, of referees or officials just seeing things happen so quickly with the naked eye that you can easily get something wrong. So they want to go back and get it right. Now, do they miss it still even then? Sometimes. But overwhelmingly, that is a tool to make good judgment to get things right. And people are glad when they do. So then how do we turn and talk about God's wrath? The wrath of God, as is talked about in the Bible. In a nutshell, to put it simply, to talk about the wrath of God is to say that God is against evil all the time. We can say God is good, God is love. That's not just a New Testament thing, that's an all-of-time thing. God is love, God is good, God is patient, God is merciful, God is just. And God is always against evil. God is against racism. God is against slavery. God is against oppression and, and exploitation. God is against hunger and starving children. God is against murder and adultery and genocide. God is against evil. And God promises to do something about it. So let's say someone in your neighborhood robbed six houses. They broke the windows to get in. They went in and stole Jewelry, iPhones, money, whatever was valuable, and had thousands of dollars worth of money and goods, and then they got caught. So the police caught them, and then they had to go through the whole process and went to court before a judge, and then the judge would say to them, hey, did you steal all the, this money and these valuables? And the person said, yes. And then the judge said, do you still have them all? The person said, yes. And then what if the judge just said, well, okay, have a nice day, just, you know, try not to do it again. Would that work? No. 
Why not? Because there was no justice. If money wasn't returned, if iPhones, computers, jewelry were not returned, the windows that were broken, the owners had to pay for them to be fixed. That's not justice. Would you want the judge to make things right? And what would make things right? It would be to return people's money to them, to return their things to them, to pay for the broken windows. That is justice. It is making the situation right. Now, if the judge were to order, in that case, all of this, would you say the judge was mean or moody or unloving? No. You would say that she or he was making things right. They were doing justice. So the idea of the wrath, which I know sounds like a a terrifying word, and it can be, the wrath of God or the vengeance of God, it's kind of like that. God is always against evil. God is against evil in the world, in society, in government, and in your heart and my heart. And it's because God is love. God is love, God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, but God will make things right. One day God will right every wrong that has been done. So let's keep going in the book of Nahum and see how it unfolds. Verse 3, it says, the Lord is slow to anger. We saw that with Jonah. We're, we're way past that. God gave a lot of patience. Slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. And skip to verse 6. His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. So God sent Jonah to show great mercy to the Ninevites, but remember Jonah was like, no, 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 no mercy for them. They deserve it already. Jonah wanted the judgment that Nahum is now proclaiming. But God is patient. God is merciful. God is loving. And the Ninevites then repented, but here we are 100, 150 years later, and it didn't completely last, so they have turned back to their evil ways. Now, before you think God is being mean or dramatic, Many historians have long noted the brutality of the Ninevites, the Assyrians. They were mean, they were brutal, they were violent, they terrorized the ancient world unlike others before and unlike many after. And so all the peoples around them lived in fear of them. And yes, they terrorized God's people. And over and over again, God says, I am with the powerless. God loves the powerless. God loves those who are being oppressed and suffering. So God gave Nahum the prophecy of judgment against Nineveh. But remember, God was patient. God was loving. God was merciful. He gave them all this time, and he did send Jonah 150, 100 years earlier. But God will put an end to every evil, and God will make things right. Here's verse 7. It says, The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. There it is, promising that there will be an end. And then they were, 612 B.C., Babylon sweeps through and and, uh, takes over Assyrians. Then the Babylonian Empire starts. He will pursue his foes to the realms of darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. Some of you remember former communist dictator of Romania, Nicolae Ceausescu, he and his wife were somewhat famously put on a very quick trial and executed on Christmas Day, 1989. And the country cheered. Now that might seem very strange to stack that all together, 
uh, executing a longtime leader, 25 years, and on Christmas Day. But if you were one of those people who suffered for so long, poverty, oppression, imprisonment, or you had your relatives disappear, you might understand the strange joy that many of those people felt at an evil leader's downfall. And so it's, it's people like, I would say, Romanians who have suffered, who had suffered at that point for years, might understand these parts of the Bible better than we do. Verse 15 says, look, there on the mountains, the feet of the one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. That is what God actually wants. So God says, celebrate your festivals, Judah, his people, fulfill your vows. No more will the wicked invade you, that they will be completely destroyed. Do you start to see how, even as harsh as this sounds, it might actually sound comforting to some people and not to others? God comes to protect His people. God will not let evil go on forever. God cares about this world. God's just not just detached and far away. God cares about this world. God cares about real places. Nineveh and Judah in the 7th century B.C., Here, this place, God cares about Holland, Michigan in 2019. God cares about real places and real people. God cares how we treat each other. God cares how we treat our neighbors, how we act as a church, how we govern, how we live. God cares. And God is so good and God is so loving that He is against evil wherever it is. You see, it's because God is love that He has wrath. It is because God is love that He wants to end evil and promises to end evil, so He has anger and wrath and vengeance and these terrifying sounding words. It's because God is love that He has wrath. You see, if God wasn't good, God wouldn't care. But here's the thing. You might say, hey, I'm with you so far, but here's the the sticking point for me. God is the judge you are not. That's where I think it really hits, the rubber hits the road in my heart. God alone is the righteous judge. I am not, you are not. See, Nahum shows us that God is just. God sees the suffering of his people. He saw the terror that the Ninevites inflicted on the Israelites and everybody else. And God is against evil and he will deal with it, but on his own time and on his own terms. God alone is the righteous judge. But me, me, you and me, hey, we want to deal with it on our time, right? We want to see the people who have wronged us, we want to see them suffer and suffer now and suffer for a long time, right? Tell me I'm wrong, yeah? We want to see them suffer just like Jonah, right? He was mad at God for being patient and merciful and loving because he wanted them to get what he thought they already deserved, and they probably already did, We want judgment for others now, but God alone is the judge. The problem is that we want to be. We want to see people suffer and pay, and we want, at times, to inflict on them what we think they deserve. So what happens then is, when we appoint ourselves to be judge, what happens to us? What do we end up doing? We become violent, don't we? When we appoint ourselves to be the judge, we get to decide who's wronged us, what they need, what they deserve. We're the ones that become violent. What happens when we decide that we are the judge, we're the jury, we decide what somebody else deserves for what they've, we become as individuals and as societies. 
But guess what? God alone is the righteous judge. You are not. I am not. You and I get impatient with God because we've been wronged and we want justice now. Now, if you have been wronged in a real legal way, absolutely. God has put in place legal systems. That is not some of the most forgiving people have also have forgiven people for what they've done, but also pursued legal justice. That's absolutely okay. We're talking on, on a personal heart level how God wants us to interact. So we seek revenge against people who have hurt us when we're trying to be the judge. But guess what? What does the Bible tell us how we should treat people who have hurt us? Remember some words of Jesus when he talks about how you're supposed to treat people that have hurt you or people that are your enemies? What does Jesus say? Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Oh, I don't like that. <laughs> Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, not sit on the throne, be the judge, and decide everything, and then go hurt people. He says, no, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And if you turn to the book of Romans chapter 12... Paul says it almost in Old Testament language. Paul says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to, here's that phrase again, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, what you're supposed to do, he said, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So how actually are we supposed to treat other people no matter what they've done to us? First of all, it's God alone is the righteous judge. Secondly, trust God and love your neighbor, not take revenge on them. Trust God that he is the righteous judge and love your neighbor. God alone is the righteous judge. Trust God and love your neighbor. Why? Because God alone is the judge. You're not. I'm not. God has promised to one day deal with every evil. God has promised that he will, when Jesus returns, make all things right. God will right every wrong that you have suffered. And guess what? The only way that you and I will be freed from taking revenge on other people is if you believe in the wrath of God. If you believe that God will one day deal with it. You see, the only, day, or the only way that you'll be freed from becoming violent yourself and wanting to, to take revenge on people who have hurt you, the only way you'll be freed from that is if you trust that God is the judge, God alone, and God will deal with it. When you trust that God is the judge, you will be freed from taking revenge, and then you'll be able to, as Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for them. Trust God. And love your neighbor so that they might come to trust in God too. See, God wants your enemies to become your brothers and sisters in faith. And that's not always what we want, but that's what God wants. God actually loved the Ninevites. And Jonah shows us that. I'm so glad we have Jonah and Nahum. Jonah shows us God's big heart for even the enemies of God's people who are doing terrible things. God wants you to love and forgive your enemies. And the only way that you and I will be able to do that is if you see how much you've already been forgiven. See, God is just. God is the judge. God will deal with evil. God dealt with the Ninevites. And guess what? God has to deal with your evil and my evil too. And God has. 
We have to look in the mirror and see that I deserve God's judgment and you deserve God's judgment. That in our sin, we are enemies of God. We have wandered from God. Our idolatry, as we've talked about with the prophets, has made us an enemy of God. Our selfishness and idolatry should earn us condemnation, but we don't get that. God gives us compassion. You see, we deserve God's wrath, but we receive God's mercy and love. Why? Because 600 years after Nahum spoke of God's justice, God's justice was completely fulfilled in Jesus on the cross for you. Jesus took the judgment that you and I deserved. So when you see Jesus bloodied and hanging on a cross, we have to say, I put him there. You put him there. He bore the cost of every evil ever done. It's paid for, and it's my fault too. But it's done. God dealt with it. God, the righteous judge, bore our judgment himself in his son Jesus. And because of that, you receive mercy and love and forgiveness. And because you receive mercy from God, God asks you to extend mercy to others. And because you have received forgiveness, God asks you to forgive others. Because you were an enemy of God, and now God has made you a friend, He asks you to befriend your enemies, praying that they would know Jesus too. But you have to trust that God is the judge so that you and I are set free from trying to be the judge yourself. And the good news that God is the judge is this, and that, that God has holy and good wrath because He's loving. The good news is this. God does know what you've been through. God knows what you've suffered. God knows all the ways that you've been wronged. God knows all the hurt that that person caused you. God knows the abuse that you've suffered. God knows what's been stolen from you. God knows the ways you've, you've been cheated. God knows it all. And God promises to one day, when Jesus returns, make it all up to you somehow. Trust Him. God alone is the righteous judge. Trust God and love your neighbor. And may the peace of Christ that goes beyond our understanding guard your hearts and minds in faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.